Good morning. You may be seated. Thank you, rule followers, for awaiting the command. Now would you stand with me for the reading of God's word. Today's sermon comes from Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of your Son, that as we read these scriptures, which are meant to be songs and prayers about you and to you, I ask, Lord, that you would increase our faith that you would build devotion in us and give us a deep and abiding sense of gratitude for who you are, that we would find Christ at the center of every single one of these psalms, because this is true. So we pray these things for our joy and for your glory, Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. So, this is week one in, I have no idea how many weeks it's going to be, of a sermon series on psalms. Uh, as Pastor Tim Bice from Greenbrier Church and I uh, collaborate and write these sermons, um, which like they're preaching Psalms one, uh, Psalm 1 today down in Albany, Georgia. Um, so they're a sister church of ours, and so we have a close connection with them, a partnership. Uh, and so as we, as we work on these, we've recognized that instead of taking just a few months, two or three months in the Psalms, uh, we feel more and more deep, deeply convicted that we ought to spend perhaps the better part of a year, in the Psalms. I know. Like, calm down your excitement, right? Like, some of the men in the back were going to take their shirt off. It's like, run around like Pentecostals, which I, I, I'd be okay with. We could use a little more energy and, and life in this church, which is why we're in the Psalms. So Psalms are songs of refuge. Uh, I have to do a little bit of kind of uploading of information up front, doing some teaching about what, what the Psalms are, just to make sure we're on the same page. And then I get to do some preaching. So why don't you uh, hold on tight? Here come, here come the notes. Uh, the Psalms are in the Old Testament. That's on the left-hand side of your Bible. Um, the, the Psalms were written by a collection of writers. From a human perspective, uh, King David, the great and most renowned and respected king of Israel, he wrote at least 75 of the 150 Psalms. At least 75 of those are attributed to him. The sons of Korah, which are a group of Levites, priests, uh, uh, psalm writers, hymn writers, they account for around 10. And then another, another psalm writer named Asaph contributed about 12. Uh, there are some other psalms that are either unaccounted for as, as far as an author, uh, but some of them as well include uh, names potentially like Solomon, Moses, and a guy named Ethan. I didn't know Ethan was in the Old Testament. Um, the remaining 48 psalms that are kind of unaccounted for, they, uh, there are many people who kind of just attribute those to the prophet Ezra. Uh, now, that's from a human perspective. Those are the human beings who wrote those psalms down in their original manuscripts from a divine perspective. 
from God's view, which is the view that we want to make sure is overarching and governing our view, God wrote the Psalms. These are the inspired words of God. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, miraculously and perfectly and really truly inspired and gave the words of God to the men who wrote them down. And in particular, Jesus is at the center of these. We'll get back to that. You're going to hear that a lot. Now, the, the, the Psalms are a particular kind of Bible uh, a book, right? Uh, we call In the literary world, world we call it a, a, a genre, all right? It's a category. Uh, this, is, this book is included in what's called the wisdom literature. So you have history, right? There's a kind of genre in the Old Testament called history, and that's the first several books. And then you have books like Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, and these are considered books of wisdom. They deal with general truths about life and God. Now, the, the original intent of the Psalms, what are they? The Hebrew's name for the book is uh, Tehillim. See, even I have to look at it, right? Make sure I say it slow. Tehillim. It means they're praises. They are pointing to the characteristic use of these songs as praises offered to God in public worship. This is for the people of God to gather with these psalms and praise God. And this is done in two general ways. When you praise or when you give honor, when you give glory, when you worship, when you publicly enjoy God in, pub right, in public, God is both object and subject. All right? Let's take just a second for that. Object and subject. So object, when I take God and he's the object of my worship, I'm singing to you, God, right? I'm, I'm, you are the object of my praise. This is addressed to you. This is where uh, those of the more kind of 80s and 90s hippie-ish kind of uh, Christianity, uh, when we started taking our sandals off, our worship leaders started taking their sandals off on stage because this is holy ground, right? Uh, and, and we started hearing phrases like, you know, when you get into worship, when you sing, you need to forget everyone else around you. You have an audience of only one. You do have an audience of one because God is your object of praise. But God is also subject of praise. And the Psalms were meant to make God not only object of praise, but subject of praise. What's that mean? Now I'm praising and talking about how great God is to other people, to myself and to others. And so this is potentially an aspect that a lot of Christians have either neglected or ne never recognized some have even rejected this, this those audience of one type, type folks, and that's well-intentioned. But the Psalms put God as not only object, but it's for the people of God to look to the side around them and go, isn't he marvelous? Oh, how wonderful. Isn't he great? Praise the name of the Lord our God. I know you're doing that, God. You praise your name. Stir one another up. One another up. Let's praise the name of the Lord our God. It's both object and subject. That's, that's where God lies in these psalms. Now, it's collected. There's 150 psalms. They're collected in five smaller books. Uh, and I'm not going to bother you with the kind of like breakdown of that. All right, that's about all of the kind of Wikipedia-type upload of information I'm going to give to you. All right, you good? All right. Much like um, the book of Revelation when we went through that, um, and as well, kind of what we've been, 
words are very hard. Um, what we've been doing with uh, the gospel traits as well as Colossians, uh, I, we just want to give you kind of a set of guiding principles to help just kind of contain um, how, we, how we look at and approach the Psalms, all right? You're going to see these often and regularly. Uh, we'll, we'll try and see if we can maybe put them on uh, our social media so you can see them as well. I say that sort of thing, but Abby Tillman, who does our social media, uh, like I, I just make, I make those statements and then she goes, oh, I guess we're doing that now. She's a very kind and hardworking person. Uh, she's, she's great. Here's some guiding principles about how we should approach and receive the Psalms. Number one, the book of Psalms is a collection of prayers which are sung by God's people. These are prayers and they're meant to be sung by God's people. These are not, first and foremost, individual scriptures for you in your private time. That's perfectly okay. In fact, that's recommended and encouraged for you to have these in your personal, individual, quiet time with God. But first and foremost, these are public, corporate prayers of God's people, which are sung. Number two, the Psalms teach us to pray giving us godly words for our fallen nature. There's a, there's a church father from about 16, 1700 years ago, um, a man named Athanasius, and he wrote that the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because most of the scripture speaks to us. While the, while the Psalms do that, they also speak for us. The Psalms speak for us. They speak to us, and uniquely, they speak for us. Um, the Psalms are how God means to teach us to talk to him about our life, about our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, our desires, our desperations, our, our devotions, our needs. In the Psalms, we find God teaching us how to righteously and properly talk to him. I want you to think about a, a good parent, maybe a mom or dad in this case. I'm a dad, so think of a father who teaches his young children um, how they ought to speak to him. No, no, it's yes, sir. You say, please. Now it's time to say thank you. Uh, a good dad doesn't refuse his children of their expressions of their anger or sadness or discontentment. A good father doesn't shut down his kids' negative feelings and emotions being expressed. What a good dad does is receive them and then help his son or daughter shape and express those negative emotions in a clear and helpful way. He's, he's teaching his kids, and not only the negative emotions, but he's helping his kids learn to express their happiness or excitement. Uh, he teaches them how to talk not only to him, but to all others, clearly, honestly, respectfully. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 11, the psalmist there says something that effect, I have stored up your word in my heart. Who's your? Who's, who's the you? God. I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. I'm learning and I'm storing up your mind, your heart, your way in my mind and heart so that when I not only talk to you but live in this life so that I might not offend you, so that I might not sin against you. The Psalms, number three, embody the deepest theology demonstrated in prayer and song. There is deep, 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 rich theology in the book of Psalms. It, it is a song book. It is a prayer book. But the reason we want to point this out is there's a temptation in modern American Christianity to downgrade the Psalms, 
to downgrade the Psalms to purely, to purely individualistic emotionalism. This is where I do my heart work with God and it's real fluffy. I don't have to get into any sort of intellectual engagement of my mind. Um, this is where I just, I, I just be. But the Psalms are, I contend, and the Psalms are just as deeply theological as the book of Romans. The book of Romans is like the collegiate senior thesis level of theology in our Bible, like just explicitly taught, just didactically taught in Romans. And the Psalms are just as deeply theological as the book of Romans. Number four, Psalms one and two are the doorway into what's called the Psalter. That's what the, often what the Psalms are more kind of a, um, intellectually referred to, the Psalter, the collection simply of the Psalms. They're the doorway into the whole Psalter. So Psalm one and two, today and then next week, these set us up for how we are to approach the other 148 psalms. And number five, Christ is the only one worthy to pray and sing the psalms. He's the only one who's worthy to say these things. But because of the gospel, he worthies us to join him in doing so. We're not worthy of saying the words of the psalms to God. But because of the gospel, Jesus worthies us. He makes us worthy to be able to share in these prayers and then say such things to God. Right? If you've ever read through the Psalms and you've like been paying attention, there are some times where the psalmist will say crazy, like if you know your theology, if you know the theology of what mankind is and, and our fallenness and our sin nature, there are some crazy things that are said in the psalm. God, I know that you care about and protect and love the righteous, and I'm one of those. Why don't you smash those guys' teeth? Like, that sounds a little arrogant. Like, can, is anyone really allowed to tell God that they're righteous? When, like, Romans chapter 3 and a place in the psalm says, like, there's, there's no one who is righteous. How could we ever say those words to God? We're not allowed to. It's not for us to say. We get to share in that psalm. We get to pray and sing that with a clean conscience because Jesus worthies us to be able to say such things. Because of the gospel, we are counted now as righteous before God. So they become an authorized, let's say, script or model for us, which Jesus hands us. These are the words of God. These are the words of Jesus, and they are handed to us so that we can not only learn how to talk right with our Father, but we can talk and, and those words will be honored and received. He'll be pleased with what we say because Jesus is the only one who's really worthy of being in the presence of God the Father, right? He's the only, and, and we, we are not. And so he worthies us and brings us in so that we can say the same kinds of words to Jesus that he says to his Father because, well, he's, he's, made us his family, and now that's our father. We can say these things. Number, number six, finally, number six. Approaching the Psalms with Christ at the center enhances cherished intimacy with him. Putting Jesus at the center of each and every Psalm actually inherent, I'm sorry, enhances our cherished intimacy with him. Now, some of you are like, okay, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm good with that. Well, the reason I might say that is there are going to be some things as we go through, like even just today's sermon, that might, that might seem to some of us who have a treasured 
psalm. We have a cherished uh, scripture in this book that maybe in a, in a hard time, a dark time, a trialsome time in your life, that's, that's the psalm you pray, that's the psalm you memorize, that's the song you were clinging to with your fear, with your, with your, with your weeping. And, and it might seem in the way, some of the, some of the ways that I teach on this, it might seem like I'm trying to rob you of that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take something from you that you find cherishing, like close to your heart about a psalm in here. Well, I, what, what I'm doing really is, yeah, I want to take some of that from you. I do want to take that from some of you. But only so that I can take it and, and turn it around its proper way and hand it back to you, right? It's, 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 like, it's like you walk up to a good friend, uh, and they're not dumb, but they've never used a hammer before. Uh, and so you see them nailing things, but they got, they're holding it by the, <laughs> the hammerhead and the claw, and they're, they're whacking the nail with like the, the wooden handle. Well, you go, no, hey, let me, hey, let me, let me turn that right. See, look, boom, 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 right? You were nailing. You knew this, was, you know what this is for. You're not an idiot. Yeah, good, fine, right? But you just, this is going to work. This is going to do it what you really wanted it to do, which is enhance your intimacy with God. So I told you last week, we're done with the Gospel Traits Sermon Series, but we're not done with Gospel Traits. So I'm going to form, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to couch today's big idea in the form of a, uh, of a gospel trait. And here it is. Jesus is the blessed man. And we share in his blessing by abiding in him. Jesus is the blessed man. And we are the ones who share in his blessing by abiding in him. I'm, I'm, I've been using that word a little bit lately, a little more, and I'm going to keep using it because it's a really good, good, good word, and I want you to get really familiar with What does abide mean? It means to live and dwell, but it means to live and dwell and stay put, right? This idea of abiding is go back hundreds and hundreds of years, back when we didn't have plumbing and stuff, right? And, and if you needed, you, if you wanted to survive, you needed to live in your hut or your village or your house, like near a clean source of water. And you didn't wander and go far off from there because you didn't know where the next water source might be. So you abide there. And if you want life, this is where I live my life, near the source of water, which is going to give me life. And so we abide, we live our lives, our daily lives, staying close in our heads, in our thinking, in our hearts, sorting through our feelings. And we want to do that, sticking real close and being aware of Jesus and his presence. And so we get into Psalm chapter one. I'd suggest that we do two readings. Like I want, I want, this is like a practice I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to, to take part in when you read the Psalms, okay? I want you to have two readings. Even if you read it once, I want you to read it twice as you read it once. What do you mean? Okay, here we go. I want you to think of a blue reading and a red reading two different colors, a blue team and a, and a red team. And a lot, much of what, what you're going to read in the Bible, if you're going to get God's meaning that he intends for you to get, you, you're going to need to orient yourself. Where do I stand? All right? Much, much of the time, it's easy to see where God stands, but where, where, where am I in this parable? Where am I in this passage? And how should I be viewing and listening and hearing and receiving what God is revealing about himself? Like, in the, in the parable of, uh, of the uh, prodigal son, Jesus, when he's telling that parable in real life, he had, 
two groups of people. He, he had a bunch of tax collectors and, and prostitutes and, and cheats and drunks in the crowd, but there were also religious elite people called Pharisees and Sadducees. They were, they were the good people. They were obeying the laws, and moral laws, civil laws. And they, they were clean people. They were respectable people. And so Jesus, when he tells the story of the prodigal son, he, there's a son who we all know is a prodigal because he's clearly wicked. He, run, he gets his inheritance early from his dad before he's dead, basically says, I want your stuff. I don't love you. And, and he runs off and he lives just this crazy MTV Cribs type, you know, reality te- television lifestyle, spending all the money, right? Getting drunk, all right? Uh, having dates with ladies, uh, just doing crazy stuff. Well, clearly he's the bad kid. And, and so Jesus wants the, the clearly bad people to see themselves as the prodigal son. But there's another brother, and Jesus wants the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these elite people, he wants, this, he wants them to see themselves as the older brother, who is actually also prodigal. He's also sinful. He just stays at home with Papi, uh, Papa. He, he obeys all the rules, but he's also terrible and sinful and wicked because in the, in the parable, the, the bad son comes home and receives forgiveness. He's welcomed by the father. And the, the, the good son, he didn't go out and get his brother. He didn't love his brother. In fact, he didn't even really love the father. He's only obeying the father so he can get all the pleasure of the father and have the inheritance and be seen to be a great kid. But he doesn't really actually love his father. If he really loved his father, he'd have his father's heart and he'd go after his baby brother, right? And so the Pharisees need to orient themselves that way. So when we read these Psalms, where do we sit, right? Where do we sit? Where do we stand? The, here's the blue reading, the, the red reading, blue team, red team. We need to read the Psalms seeing ourselves on the blue team. That's us standing apart from Jesus, out from under the gospel. We need to read the Psalms the way we ought to so that the gospel can be brought to bear, so that you don't wrongfully ignorantly, naively, or even pridefully approach God's word and take these words to him in a way that actually offends him. Because you just think, I default to the red team. I'm on team Jesus. I'm one of the good people. I'm, I'm, one, I'm like the Pharisees. Well, no, I, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but better than the Pharisees, actually. It's even more arrogant, isn't it? I'm, 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 I'm on the good guy's side. So of course I should read these Psalms and say them and, and sing them and pray them. We need the bad news that the Psalms reveal about us with a blue reading so that then the gospel comes and and, and gives us the better news, which then we have a red reading. We can read this from the red kind of team perspective, which is in which Jesus invites us to share in his blessings, something we don't deserve, something he doesn't owe us. This is kind of the second reading through the lens of the gospel by which Jesus worthies us and invites us to share in these words now too. He says, you can say these things to my father now because you belong to him, because of my gospel, because of who I am and what I've done and what I've made you to be. Now you have a place here. And this puts Jesus at the center of every gospel. So let's take a look at verse one. Blessed is the man. This word blessed is the Hebrew word baruch, baruch, it means happy, complete, full. There's a, it, it implies this intense state of well-being. And someone can be blessed in the midst of terrible, terrible tragedy and things. 
Maybe you're not happy, but you can have an intense sense of well-being, of soul rest, of peace, of clarity of mind. But the blessed man is Baruch. He's complete. Now, the blue reading, here's what the blue reading takes us. You and I are not this person. We don't start there. You and I are not the person who's blessed. Nevertheless, this is this blessed state. This is this is a state of being for which man was designed and created for. God created Adam and Eve to experience a life, an eternal life of being blessed, being happy, full, complete, shalom, peace. But the only hope for us to find ourselves Baruch, blessed, is laid out in this psalm. It's to abide in God and with God, staying close to him, meditating and storing his mind and heart, his law, his word, and being in it all the time. And in addition, abiding in and with God and his word keeps us from the, it keeps us from the position or, or posture or heart attitude of, of not Baruch, of not blessed. Because the next several verses show us what the, the not blessed people are like. So we need to see Jesus, he's the blessed man. The red reading, the red team then sees, I, I can only say, sing, or pray Psalm 1 as a truly blessed person, if Jesus is the blessing for me. All right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. See, Jesus doesn't accept or agree with the thinking, opinions, and the worldviews of the, uh, the, the, the worldly, or of the unbelieving, those who oppose God, those who disagree with God, those who question God, those who might... Co- contemplate or consider some things that God says, because maybe that might work out for me. Maybe I kind of like that, but um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consider for myself which parts of what God thinks or says or intends. I, I, I'll choose, pick and choose for myself which of those I'm under and which of those I can just kind of leave off. These are the wicked people. The, the blue reading that we need is, yeah, I'm, I'm in the wicked. I walk, like my default natural born state is to, to walk in the way of the world to live my life with the worldview and the narratives and the belief and postures of, of people who don't honor God. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. He, Jesus doesn't take part in the works of iniquity because his mind and heart don't walk the path of sin. And so therefore his words and his actions, and, and he's not rooted or planted or, or standing. He doesn't, he doesn't adopt and plant a flag in the, in the place of sinful thinking and activity. But guess, guess, guess who does? The blue team. Us. Right? The red reading sees Jesus as not that. And the blue reading puts us exactly where we ought to be. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. Let me talk just a second about scoffers, these sort of people. Um, you know scoffers, don't you? If you've watched CNN or Fox News, if you watched any cable or internet news where there are pundits, there are spin masters, there are people, if you've read a newspaper and there's a, some sort of political or cultural editorial, most, not most, a lot of the time, those are scoffers. These are people who are wise in their own eyes. I'm sophisticated and savvy in my own eyes, and people need to listen to me. And generally, the worst of them, you can point out a scoffer pretty quickly, is they've got an arrogant sense, a very confident 
sense of self. Often they're very fast talkers. They have a sharp wit, a sharp tongue, and they don't really make any positive or constructive statements. They don't really hold much of a position. What they do is they find people who do make clear statements, people who do hold a philosophy or a point of view, whether it's right or wrong, they find the people who do have a stance, they do have a position, and the scoffers, their job is to poke holes in them, to tear them down, to make everyone question them, right? The scoffer is actually a coward because it takes a lot of guts to take a stand because then you got to stand there. You got to guard that position. You, you have to defend that. And you have to suffer the, the risk of perhaps having to correct yourself if you find that you've taken the wrong position, if, you, if you've made the, believed the wrong and, and said the wrong statement. It takes a lot of guts. The scoffer knows nothing. They're sophisticated because their point of view is, you know what, you can't really know anything except that you're stupid, except that you're dumb, except you're backward. You're on the wrong side of history. You're, you're culturally behind the times. They're scoffers. They're self-important and they despise the wisdom of the Lord, the scoffer. They despise the wisdom of the Lord. And so they'll make fun of a Christian. They'll make fun of someone who really loves Jesus for being basically, basically, uh, I love the Simpsons. I wasn't allowed to when I was 12. My mom told me that it was sinful. Um, but I, now, that, now that I'm an adult, and if I want to eat a whole chocolate cake on my own, I can, because I'm an adult. I also watch the Simpsons. Ha! He's... Nothing to say, Mom? Okay, fine. No, I'm, no please don't. Um, I'll get talked to you uh, later. Um, in The Simpsons, who's, who, who's Homer Simpson's next-door neighbor? Ned Flanders. And he's a Christian. And the show almost... It's, it took years for them to show any sort of a sympathetic view of Ned Flanders. But for years, they just hammered this guy, and he was the puppet. He was the sign and symbol of religious people, of Christians. And they... They made fun of him because the ways of God seem foolish to the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, and we went over this several months ago, but God, God is going to use the foolish and lowly things to, to actually put to shame and scoff at the scoffers. Jesus doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. He honors God. He honors his Father. But from the blue point, from the blue, blue point of view, we need to see ourselves as the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. Because we scoff at Jesus. When you read the Gospels and Jesus is carrying his cross after his beating and he's going through the streets on his way to die, we need to orient ourselves on the sidelines of the street in the crowd that is not only crying out for his blood, but mocking him. We need to put ourselves in the position of the criminal on the cross next to him as well as the Pharisees on the ground who said, you said you're the son of God. You and the Father are one. Well, why don't you go ahead and save yourself? Huh? Oh, I guess, I guess, did you, did you, do you want to take that back? I guess it's not really real. Everyone sees this, right? He can't do it. We need to put ourselves in that position. The blue reading. Jesus is scoffed at because he won't join us in our disbelieving mockery of God. And the good news is, as he's on the cross, he's, he's dying and paying for the sin of many of those who are scoffing at him. He's, he's enabling them to scoff at him. And as they heap more and more sin, he is dying for that sin at that moment. Instead, 
this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man delights in God's law. In the Old Testament, when we say law, generally speaking, the Hebrews would be meaning like the Bible. Now, they didn't have all the Bible. When this psalm was written, like Malachi wasn't written. Some of these prophecies, some of these things, they, they hadn't come to pass yet. So when they talk about the law, they're talking generally about the Bible that we have, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But this is God's law, his word. This man delights. He likes what God says. He likes the way that God thinks. He likes God's character. He, he, he sees God's design and ordering of all of creation, specifically human life, and he goes, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the right way. Man, the way that we, no. I love that. I love the way he thinks. His ways are better and higher than mine. That's the attitude, the heart position of the blessed man. The law for the blessed man is God's path to flourishing. I've been hammering away at this for a few years, and I'm just going to keep going. For an unbelieving mind, for a Christian who is suffering and, and, and wayward, and, and, and you're believing and thinking in a worldly way, God's laws... Ten Commandments, all of, his, all of his commands and rules for us, they, they seem to be such a burden. They seem to be robbing us and taking fun and coolness and enjoyment away from us. But when you, are, when you have the blessed man's thinking, if you'll receive Jesus' gospel invite for him to be your blessing, and you can see and read this from the red perspective, well then, God's law is actually the pathway for your flourishing, for your joy, for your safety. It reveals his character. It reveals his love for us. God's law makes this man wise, keeps him safe, helps him flourish, and sets him up for joy. That's Jesus. Because no one, no one apart from Jesus, defaults to, I love my father's ways. I love God's ways. I delight in opening this and knowing and feeling and seeing and having the mind of the living God sharing into my mind and heart. And, and he delights and meditates on God's word day and night. Now, if, we're gonna, if you're going to be the red team, right? If you want to get to the red team under the gospel, and then you go, okay, now, now I can orient myself as the blessed person. What does it look like for me to be a blessed person? I'm supposed to delight in God's law. Okay, I'm, I'm working on that one. And on, on his law, I meditate day and night. You know, I got a job. I got bills to pay. I have kids to raise, feed, clothe. Not, not let them die in the middle of the street, okay? I, I've got stuff to do. So I can't just be reading my Bible all day and night. Surely that's, this is an embellishment. It's kind of metaphorical hyperbole, right? Well, no. It's not hyperbole. But it also doesn't mean that the blessed man sits around and reads the Bible all day long. What it does mean is the blessed man, the person, this person, he does spend a lot of time in God's word. He does. He's committed to knowing and taking in God's mind, heart, and character into his mind and heart and character in such a way that he's so familiar on it that he meditates on it day and night. He, this is what I mean. You meditate on your job day and night. You're meditating on your schooling day and night. You're, you're meditating on your wife or your kids all day and night. All day and night. Because you're in the car and there's no one there but you're talking to someone in your mind, your, your thoughts. You're not simply or purely daydreaming. And like, I know it's hard to believe, ladies, when like, you're, you're 
tell you, you know, ask your man, what are you thinking about? He goes, nothing. I know he really does look like, no, nothing. He's absolutely blank slate. There's nothing in there. No, we're thinking about something. We're all meditating and chewing and processing on something. This guy, throughout his day, whether he's swinging a hammer, driving a car, talking to his kids, right? Kissing his wife goodnight in bed, right? At a party, at dinner, he, he's chewing on and meditating, running God's word and character through what my life is right now. Who is God? Where is he? Where am I oriented? How should I feel? What should I do? Oh, this is so good. This comes from God, right? What, what God's put into you if you're a Christian and you're born again and he's transferred you from a blue reading to now you also are getting to share in the red reading, you, you have been given a new mind and driven by a new heart, a new way of thinking and feeling so that you can now, like, you can not only meditate, you can meditate, but you like it. We're designed, I've said over and over again, we're designed to pursue joy, every human being. We're designed to pursue joy. And we all, whether you're Christian or not, we all know that joy, our delight, is found in and with something or someone glorious. So if I want joy, I need to find something or someone glorious and abide and stick next to it. Never let go of it. Always stay near to them. Which means you've got to do your blue reading first so you can see that your joy is in something that's not glorious, something, something or someone in this world, and it's not going to bring the delight and satisfaction that you ought to want. And under the gospel, the gospel shifts us to be able to read it in the red reading, and Jesus goes, here, join me in this reading. Join me in this way of praying and saying this with me at the, the center, because I'll be the glory that actually brings you joy. And, and in my Father's word, my here, here's the glory of my Father written down for you. So you can, you can read it and like even put it in your head and take his glory with you throughout your day to all the unglorious things like your job and your cubicle or wherever it is, you're, right? This man, in verse 3, he plants himself as near as he can to the most glorious person there is, God. Jesus plants himself and stays close to his Father all the time. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. It's not a flower, it's not a bush, not a shrub, not grass. This guy's a tree. And this guy, as a tree, his purpose is to bear fruit. Is to bear fruit. Jesus is this tree. He provides fruit for the life of others. He, he provides shade from the harshness of the sun of this life. And he provides the very wood... He provides the wood for the cross that saves. He is the tree that is cut down to save the sinful person with the axe. He's the root of Jesse, Revelation chapter 22. He's the root of Jesse. This tree has deep roots. Who's, well, hold on, who's Jesse? You know, Uncle Jesse, Full House, 90s, it was great. Go back and watch it. No, Jesse, is, Jesse was the father of King David, right? And Jesus points out over and over again when he's talking about himself in the Gospels, he, I'm the root of Jesse. Uh, the, my Lord said to the Lord, like, you know, I am. Uh, before Abraham was, before David, before any, I am. I'm ever living, eternal God. And so the great king, David, Jesus goes, yeah, but I'm the root of his dad. I, like, David's not a king unless I'm king of kings. 
And he is this tree. His roots go down deep, abiding by his father with his father. Next, this stream of living water, Revelation 21 and 22, says a lot about water. It talks about a river of life running right through the new heavens and the new earth in the, in the new and redeemed city of Jerusalem. And Jesus, in, in chapter 22 of Revelation, keeps on, keeps on making an invitation. He keeps on saying, come to me. If you are thirsty, come to me and receive. Come and take living water. And it has no price. Come and take the living water. And Jesus is planted by this water. He's, this is life. Life is found with Jesus, right? It's with and in him. And for if Jesus is this, life is found with the Father and the Spirit, which he is inextricably intertwined. So now we go back to the not Jesus, the not blessed person. Number four, verse four, the wicked are not so. They're not like this. And it's not a matter of the wicked not doing or saying the kinds of things that Jesus says and does. It's a matter of they don't have the same heart and mind that Jesus says he has. Because like what, what you say and do comes from within. Your true thoughts and your true feelings, that's what produces what you say and do. And, and the, the wicked don't think and feel like this. They don't delight in God. And they don't believe life is found with God. They don't find him to be that essentially precious. At best, if you're religious, at best, he's just a really good consideration to make. Maybe we should, maybe we should go to church sometimes and get some, get some religious mojo on us. You know, I've been feeling bad. I've been feeling a little down. I need some help. So, so yeah. But the problem is, like, that action doesn't correspond with the real true heart and mind you have, which is to generally just kind of essentially neglect God in your thoughts in your heart. The wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. The blue team, the blue reading indicates that the wicked do not delight in God's law. They don't meditate on it day and night. And they're blown this way and that by every wind of doctrine. That's Ephesians chapter 4. By every wind of doctrine. Lost in a hurricane of thousands of human doctrines, modern philosophies, religions, worldviews, narratives the latest, most sophisticated point of view. There, there are professing Christians who don't actually believe the gospel. And they're eventually, they're shaken loose by the winds of change in this world or suffering in their life and the many voices of this world. How can you say that? Once saved, always saved. Yeah, once saved. if you're saved, you really are a Christian, then you'll never not be a Christian. That's why I parse my words that way. There are professing Christians who don't believe, they have not received fully, truly, like what it is they say they believe. We'll prove that. I, I don't know. There's plenty of stuff in the, what, that Jesus himself says in the Gospels, like Matthew chapter 13, when he's talking about the, the different kind of seeds and the different kind of soil that the, the Gospels tossed on. Those who profess Christ and look like, and they look like they have faith. They're, they're starting to produce some, what appears to be like spiritual or religious fruit, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13 that some of those, they get choked out, the life of the gospel gets choked out by the weeds. And then he later explains to his disciples, those weeds, those are the cares of this world. Their money problems, their fears over their career, their, their devotion to wife or kids or 
or popularity, whatever it is, it, it squeezes out their what's supposed to be a supreme, central, not going away from it, abiding in it, love for God. And it's, they're choked out. They look like they had life. They look like they're, but it'll get revealed. There's another very, probably one of the scariest parts in all of the Bibles when they're religious people. They would have said, I'm a Christian. And they get to Jesus' throne and their judgment and they go, Lord, Lord, I preached in your name. I, I healed people miraculously in your name. I cast out demons in your name. At least two of those things I have yet to do, right? And, and Jesus says, yeah, get away from me. I don't know you. You, didn't, you did those things in my name, but you didn't do them for my name. You did them for your name. You used my name for your gain. You didn't love me. And then it's revealed. They're not sheep. They're goats, and they get separated from the flock. The wind, that the, 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 the chaff, that the, the junk and the leftover stuff from the wheat. It's not real wheat. It's all the stuff you separate from the actual plant life that makes food, and all this gets swept away, blown away, and tossed into the fire. You think of Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says that, talks about this grass of the field which today flourishes but tomorrow is chaff. It's thrown into the fire. And this, these wicked people, they don't, they're not planted like a tree with God. They plant themselves with shallow roots in any and every other soil. Their house is built on sand, on any territory except for the rock of Jesus Christ. A red reading here, the red team would see Jesus. John chapter 12, verse 24. You'd go, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the seed that dies and rises again to bear fruit. So he's, he's a tree, and even if he's chopped down, he grows back up again. He's alive. He continues to bear fruit. He's not going to be blown away. You can trust your God. I know for some of us, it looks very concerning, very worrisome that our nation is going down wrong paths and people are becoming more spiritual, but far less godly. And all the morals and the good traditional values and the love for the nuclear family and respect and dignity and honesty and fair play, it's all going away. And you're getting worried. I want you to know that you don't need to worry about Jesus. America can't kill him. The, the liberals, they can't kill Jesus. The conservatives who make him look bad because they play at religion, they can't kill him. You can't make Jesus go away. And in fact, I'll tell you, in societies where some of us are potentially thinking and worrying, oh, we're going to end up like North Korea. We're, we're on the path toward China. We're on the path toward this, this sort of nation or culture where they outlawed religion and no one has the freedom to gather and assemble and worship God. You want to know the fastest growing population of gospel-centered Christianity in the globe right now? China. China. Jesus isn't chaff. He's not blown away by the wind. In fact, he's the one who permits, in fact, sovereignly ordains that the Chinese government years ago decides to punish and shame Chinese pastors, Christian pastors, by making them do public service. 
they had to go door to door to people's houses collecting their trash. Because being a garbage man in the Chinese culture, at least at that time, was outrageously shameful. The Chinese government wants to punish and get rid of Christianity. What are we going to do? Let's take all the pastors and send them door to door. They look like chaff being blown away to the wind and Christianity's going away. No, Jesus is scattering the seeds, right? And his tree is being planted. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's Matthew 7. Depart from me, I never knew you. Even though we were good people, we went to church, we read the Bible. They won't stand in the judgment. They won't join the congregation of the righteous. You see Revelation chapter 20, 21, they're told to depart. Get away from me. Those of you who are cowardly, unjust, sexually immoral, liars, you're wicked, you're spiritual but not godly, calls them basically participating in witchcraft. You, you have a place to go. You never wanted me. Now I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you a place where you don't have to experience anything of me. But the red reading receives Revelation 19, 6 through 9, where they're in the congregation. They've been judged like, like putting stuff through fire. And the Lord burns up all that is not faith. He burns up all that is not gospel. Not all that is not the grace of his son on this person. And what is left is actual gold. What is left is actual life. What is left is what God put into that person through his grace and by faith. You can't read Psalm chapter 16. You can't read Psalm chapter 16 rightly. In verse 3 in Psalm 16 where it says, As for the saints in the land, these are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But Jesus can say that because Jesus looks at his people and says, These are the saints in the land and they are those in whom I delight in. All my delight is wrapped up in these. These people I purchased. These people I saved. These people, my sheep. I love them. My friends, my servants, my kingdom. With a blue reading, we have to stand apart from that. We can't say it. But with the red reading, Jesus goes, come on. I worthy you. You believe in me. My grace on you. Faith in me. Now, join me in delighting in the saints in the land. Those who do stand in the judgment. Those who are welcomed and happy to be in the congregation of God's righteous. What does it mean to stand in the judgment? It means to be acquitted to not be dismissed, to not be told, depart from me, I don't know you. I don't know you, you don't belong here, you're a stranger, right? But to stand is, oh, I know you. I know you. If anyone here doesn't, they don't, this is Lawanda, this is Loya, I know them. God goes, you're my daughters. Ah, before I, before I made you, before I flicked the light switch on the entire universe and there was space, time, and energy and matter before anything, I knew you. I, I'm so happy that you're here. Come over here with your brothers and sisters. You belong here. 
That's the welcome. That's the invitation that God gives. The congregation of the righteous is righteous. Even though they were blue readers, they were blue team, they were sinners, Jesus, with his blood, imputes his righteousness, righteousness to them. He, he gives to us, he lays on us his righteousness, and he takes away our unrighteousness. So you are righteous, and therefore have a place in the congregation of the righteous. The way that works is Psalm chapter 103. For he does not deal with us according to our iniquities, nor does he repay us according to our sins. Instead, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sin from us. And he has compassion on us like a father to his children. But the wicked won't stand in the judgment. They'll be told to depart. They're not acquitted. Sinners don't have a place in the congregation of the righteous. And honestly, the sinners don't want us, they don't want to be in the congregation of the righteousness. Because like, well, those are the people we scoff at. They're fools, they're idiots. Like, I don't really want to go to Lake of Fire, but I certainly don't want to hang out with these losers. I don't want to hang out with you. So the final verse, verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This word knows gets a lot of us in trouble in the Bible. Gets a lot of us in trouble in the Bible. In this case and several other cases, when it says that God knows, not simply something, but God knows someone, the Bible isn't talking of purely, simply intellectual apprehension or knowledge of this person. Right? Like, I know who Jeff Foxworthy is. Right? You know, he might be a redneck, right? That guy. I know who he is. I've even met him. I have a book signed by him. But I, I don't know him. More importantly, he doesn't know me. So I can't go into his house. I can't just knock on the door. I have no place with him. He won't, he won't welcome me in. I'll be in handcuffs in five minutes. Because not only does Jeff Foxworthy have no knowledge of me intellectually, but even if he did, he doesn't know me. So what's this word know mean? What's this greater sense of that word know? The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows the righteous people. It means love. I have a positive, happy, warm, intimate relationship with these people. This is the same word that in, in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 2 when it says, so God gave Adam, uh, Eve, his wife, and then Adam took his wife away and he knew his wife. This is what they mean. He knew her in the biblical way. That wasn't, hey, so brand new naked lady that we're both perfect. What's your favorite music? I don't know. It hasn't been invented yet. Oh, that's good. We should make some music. Right? No, it's he made love to her. He knew her, loved her, her personhood, her identity, her body. He, he loved this relationship. They were intimate. They were familiar. That's why when the Bible says, talks of God's people, Christians, as those whom God foreknew, this is not a matter of God looking down some quarter of the future where he sees that you would be someone someday who would make a decision of some sort for him accepting his son, Jesus, and then he goes, ah, I see into the future what you will do, so now I will write your name in the book of life because I know I have intellectual knowledge. Uh-uh. One, the future isn't someplace that Jesus sees. The future is someplace that God is at all times and all places, and so is the past. He's not bound, enslaved, or held up in not only space, but also time. 
That's number one. Two, that's not what that word means. It doesn't mean he knew about you ahead of time. It means he loved you before you even were. He knew you and was familiar with you before he knitted you together in your mother's womb. And the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He, he knows his people. He's familiar with them. They have a place with him. Jesus, Jesus is the person of the way of the righteous. And God loves that. He and the Father are one. But do you know why the wicked will perish? Because God doesn't know them. They don't know God. Satan knows God. He knows all about God. Satan knows more Bible. He's got the whole Bible memorized. He could whoop me. He could whoop, he could whoop anybody in a Bible theology quiz. Whoop us all. And he'll perish. Because him and God, they don't know each other. For all the knowledge that Satan has of God, we don't know each other like that, bro. Depart from me, Satan. And the wicked will perish because they have no place with God and with him is life. The very first word of this passage, of this psalm, is blessed. That's verse one, blessed. And the last word of this psalm is perish. Blessed. That's what you want to be. And in order to, in order to get there, you need that red reading. And you, you don't really get the red reading unless you've done the blue reading. So then the hammer, you're holding it by its proper end. And it does the thing you really wanted to do anyhow. And at the end, that's those who have the blue reading. And they don't, they don't see any reason for a red reading. They don't believe the gospel. They don't see Jesus. They don't need Jesus to be at the center of it. This is a good idea, Pastor Matt, this cool, interesting way of looking at the Psalms, Pastor Matt, but uh, I, I really like to read the Psalms for myself. This is very individualistic for me. This is very unique, and, and, and I feel like you're taking something away from me. I am. I'm trying to take something away from you. So it's properly oriented, and it can do what you really want it to do. But if you're satisfied with the blue, you don't get to the red reading and you don't get to Jesus. There's two destinies. A blue reading, the blue team, this, this psalm is a prophecy of Jesus over you on your way to perishing. Or this is a welcome and it's a promise to you to include you in his blessing because he is your blessing, which is the red reading. So let me end with just a, I'm going to give you mm, four things, four things. This is what we call response, uh, more, more in, like more snooty college level uh, SAT kind of word. What I've been preaching, teaching here today is what's called orthodoxy, right understanding. And then when we, when we get to this point where I do the application, it's called orthopraxy, which means right action based off of knowing rightly. So. How can we practice this? How can we apply this? How can we engage in orthopraxy? Number one, you need to believe the gospel. Are you sure you're reading and hearing the word of God from that red reading? If you haven't received forgiveness of sins by trusting in Jesus Christ, surrendering to his grace to save you today is what you need most. 
You don't have blessing from God unless you know him and he knows you. You don't have blessing from God and there is no deal to be made with him in which he approves of you or anything about you unless his son Jesus stands for you. That's what you need. The red reading is impossible unless you believe and love and accept the gospel. Number two, therefore, take your time. You open the Psalms, take your time. Don't rush through. Read over it, pray over it, and do that over and over. Take it slowly, break it down. I'll be sharing my sermon manuscript this week. Uh, I've just decided we'll put it on Facebook or something, right? Thank you, Abby. So that this week you can go back and read Psalm 1. And if it's of any help to you, any assistance, you can go through my exegesis, my teaching of Psalm 1. So you can go through it and like rethink it and remember it and, and work through it, maybe even receive on your own. But take your time. Memorize it, number three. Or at least part of it. Hebrews 8, 10, Psalm 1, 19, 11, Psalm 37, 31. You have to go back to the podcast to get those addresses or look at the manuscript because I'm not going to say those again. There, those three and more are God's commands, his encouragements, his command. The path for your flourishing is where he keeps on going. You need to put my word. You need to put me, write it, write me on your mind. Write me on your heart so that no matter where you're at and when you are, even if you don't have one of these, even if you don't have the Bible on your phone, you, you've, you've still got his word. You sing hymns, you sing songs, worship songs that are near and dear to you, maybe in times of need or happiness or sad, right? You need God's word. And these are God's words of God given to you. These are God's words that now you know these are good words that God likes to have. Well, I know, but they're not, they're not mine. They're God's, and I'm just being a parrot. No, you're not being a parrot. Because parrots don't feel or understand anything about Polly wanted the cracker. That's just sounds that, but you, you go, God's words, these are, the, these are better words than mine. And maybe right now I'm in such a place that I'm just confounded, I'm bewildered, and I don't have words for what I'm going through. And I'm trying to talk to God. He's given you perfect words. And you don't have better words of your own to give to God than the words he's given to you to give back to him. These psalms, they don't just speak to us. They speak for us. And Jesus does it the right way. If you can trust him for your salvation, then you can trust him for the words you need to say to God for acceptance. And then number three, abide with Christ and meditate. Repeat and remember. Repeat and remember. And then chew on what you've been reading in God's word. Chew on and meditate on. And when you pray, pray phrases of the Psalms. And work those through your head. As you pray at your desk, as you pray in your car, as you pray in your quiet time. Jesus, this is you. I see you're the blessed man. And I have, I'm blessed. Because you're blessed. And if you're not the if you're not the song master and the song writer, then I have no place in the choir. I can't sing this unless you sing it first and I get to sing this because you sing and pray this and you, you make it so your father's happy to hear it from me 
protect me from wickedness. Help me not scoff, but help me delight in your law. Help me delight in your way. God, please help me, because I know I'm going to go to work today around a bunch of people who don't like you, don't know you, don't care about you, and they mock people like the, they, they scoff at me because they scoff at you, and I'm going to be tempted to be like them. I'm going to be tempted to try to be cool and, and to, to layer down and, 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 and filter out a bit of my holiness because I don't want to be mocked. Lord, don't let, me, don't let me join the scoffers. Protect me. Preserve me. Right? Meditate, abide, and pray these as you go through your day. Next week, I'll be preaching on Psalm chapter 2. So this week, this week is all about the rule. It's all about the rule. What, is, what does it look like? What's the rule of looking like and being this blessed person? Next week, it's going to point more directly to the ruler. So I, I would encourage you, please read Psalm chapter 2 this week. Pr- try to practice what I've offered today with Psalm chapter 2 coming into this next Sunday. So that, whoa, crazy idea. When I open it up, it's not the first time you've read this passage in a while. You might actually have some foundation. So when I start saying stuff and plugging, taking out electrical cords and start, you've got a place for some of this stuff to already plug in. And you're like, Pastor Matt just became a way better preacher all of a sudden. No, I didn't. But you've been in your Bible practicing these things. Let's, let's move into our time now of, of communion, more orthopraxy, more practice. Um, this is how we respond to God's word, specifically the gospel. Jesus is the center. He's the person of Psalm chapter 1. He's the blessed man. He's the tree. The gospel tells us this tree... He ordained that he would be cut down so the wood for the cross is provided and those with the axes are saved by the very person that cut down. Up on these tables up front and on the little platforms in the back, we have our communion elements, bread and the juice. Bread represents the wrath of God, the anger of God, the hatred and fury, the judgment, the condemnation that God has for those who he doesn't know because they didn't want to know him. They've rejected him. And Jesus, he stands under the judgment, but instead of being acquitted on the cross, he's, he's judged. That's wrath. And that bread symbolizes the broken and crushed body of Jesus under the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And that juice, man, that represents living water the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross to wash away your sin and to cleanse you from all guilt and shame. So not only do you know that when you stand before God and he judges you, you'll stand. You'll stand. But also that you you can have a clean conscience that when you pray, when you sing today, when you think about maybe joining with your community group, and maybe you feel like you're kind of a scumbag or you're a loser. You're not all, all that good. You haven't been doing that great. God's probably, probably pretty displeased with me and disappointed me right now. And I don't really have a place with these people because they're, they're better reading their Bibles and, and not doing the stupid stuff that I do. I want you to know the blood of Jesus makes it very clear that you have a place with the congregation of the righteous. It's your place. You have a clean conscience. And yeah, I know you're not doing so good. Neither am I. But that's our place because he's worthied us. So we'll take this communion. You can come up and go back to your seats. Go sit with your family, with your friends, community group. You can take communion, pray, um, and, and honor God that way. 
And then as you're doing that, um, our kids will be coming in. You'll gather them back at that door. Yeah. Um, on the back left, we have our giving table. It says we give because God gave first. This is our time that we worship and honor God with the money he puts on our hands. It's his. And we honor him and we master it. I already preached that sermon last week, so I'm going to do it again. But we'll master the money God gives as our servants to us and honor our master. We'll be generous with the Lord and, and worship and praise him by the mere act of giving money. So you can either do that in the box, you can get your smartphone out and do that from our website. So let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, I ask that you would receive what we've said and what we've listened to today in a way that you're blessed, that you're, that you're happy, that you are enjoying completion and perfection and that what we do, say, pray, sing, that we, we, we would be magnifying that, enjoying it, because in honoring you, Lord, in worshiping you and praying to you, we honor you. We, we show your worthiness to ourselves and to one another. Lord, I ask that you bless us because you are our blessing. Make, make yourself our blessing and plant us by your streams of water. Know us, Lord, as your righteous, who you love, so we can stand in your judgment and we can have a place in the congregation of the righteous. Lord, we love you and we pray the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, God.